0: You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing, creator and host, Ken Vellante,
1: editor and producer, Peter Bauer. This is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast and very pleased to welcome Florence Williams, who is... um, uh, a writer, she's a lot more than a writer, but um, I'm familiar with uh, The Nature Fix, um, which uh, is a great book, uh, Heartbreak, her most recent a personal and scientific journey, which I just learned recently, Florence won the 2023 Penn E.O. Wilson Award for Literary Science. So I wanted to welcome you and say congratulations on that award.
0: Thank you so much, Ken. Great to be here.
1: Yeah, I loved – when I read the end of the What You Wanted for, the literary science writing, I became – it helped me understand – those words just helped me understand uh, some of your writing and, uh, you know, moving between, uh, you know, science – and in personal and, you know, human experience and uh, creativity. I also wanted to mention the first time I came into contact with your work was the three-day effect on Audible, um, that that podcast, which was uh, just just a wonderful uh, work. So was, I was introduced to you in that podcast.
0: Oh, that's great. You found that.
1: Really enjoyed that. Um so, Florence, I wanted to get right into you as an artist, you as a writer. Um, when did you see yourself as as an artist, or if you prefer, when did you see yourself as a writer, however you wish to approach it?
0: Well, I guess I saw myself as an aspiring artist when I was nine, because that's when I knew I wanted to be a writer. I'm not sure I would have applied the word artist to it, um, but... I was reading a lot of fiction, adult fiction, I guess, and I think there was something about the sort of outsider status of first-person narrators in fiction um, that appealed to me. At the time, my parents were divorced, and I think I saw myself as being a little bit different, you know, from yeah. Yeah. from other people the way I think a lot of self-described artists do yeah yeah. and there's something about that outsider status that um I think enables us to try to process the world and um share it I guess
1: yeah I like the word outsider because it's it feels like a perspective thing you know just uh the ability to do something different. I guess, you know, writing a book feels different, you know, and you might be around a writer crowd, but that's, you know, such a different thing to do or, or to think about. And uh, one of the things I find fascinating about your writing and um, is, is is how you immerse the the scientific and, and the personal with it, right? So it's very experiential. Um, so you know, it's not the type of science writing. You think of that uh, literary science writing, right? The, the term literary. It's its not. It has the science in the background, and you go deep into that. But it h- tends to have more of, a, of that personal, and I think the listener or reader can understand, because it's so personal, why you've arrived at that. I wanted to talk about the nature fix and... Um, its relation to creativity. I I, I mentioned the Three Day uh, Effect podcast. And when I listened to it, it was very influential on me because I was just starting to put together things in my head. I'm a city kid. I've lived out in, you know, Oregon for uh, for 11 years and just learned more about the woods. And I didn't have the language or couldn't quite figure out some of the things I was experiencing or maybe feeling more creative, at ease. And in the three-day effect, you you, you look to arrive at uh, that something happens, that something happens to a person when they're in this environment, that the environment uh, in and of itself uh, can help change and can also inspire creativity. So, could you talk a little bit about uh, your your exploration there and your realization of the connection between, say, that environment uh, and art and creativity?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I always knew that I got my best ideas outside, you know, when I was walking. And I walk every day. Uh, I've been lucky to live um, in, in beautiful places for a lot of my adult life, not all of it. But for a lot of it where I could, you know, walk places that felt peaceful um, and not too busy and not too noisy and not too, you know, crazy. And I, I, yeah, I mean, I just became really interested in in why that happened, you know, why I was able to think more clearly outside. And of course, there's a lot of literature and history about this. You know, we know that Thoreau, you know, yeah. got a lot of his ideas outside I mean, a lot of Inventors, you know, like Nikola Tesla, um, you know, came up with the the design for his engine while he was walking in a park. Um, Wordsworth, you know, walked ten thousand miles in his life and actually composed poetry while he was walking, <laughs> and and that made total sense to me. But it wasn't until I started to kind of delve into the psychology of it and the science of it that I started to learn some of the possible reasons that might be happening. So I'm really I'm really drawn to this phrase popularized by um, the Kaplans who are environmental psychologists at University of Michigan, um, Rachel and Stephen Kaplan. and it's this term um, soft fascination, which is kind of where our brains are when we're wandering around in a pleasant natural setting there's kind of the sweet spot of not being boring and also the landscape is not boring, but it's also not overstimulating. Yeah. Um, And it's in that sweet spot of kind of soft fascination that our minds can really wander um, in this really fruitful way. And then I was really interested to learn about the, work of cognitive neuroscientist david strayer at the university of utah who noticed uh well he actually administered tests of creativity and found that people's creativity improved 50 50 percent uh after they'd been outside for a few days Mm -hmm. and he started to think more about what that actually meant in terms of the real estate in our brain like where was the activation going where was the blood flow going and you know he seemed to kind of notice that our our frontal cortex, you know, which is kind of our thinking task oriented kind of executive functioning brain, kind of goes offline after we've been outside for a while as our sensory brains and our more emotional brains wake up. Um, you know, the reality is that in daily modern life, most of us are still living in our frontal cortex all the time. <laughs> you know we're yeah. we're shutting out sensory input. We don't really want to hear the street noise or the garbage, you know, or, um, want to see all those flashing lights, you know, as we're trying to drive through an intersection or something, we can't listen to the radio and drive through an intersection at the same time. You know, we sort of filter stuff out. And when we're outside of nature, this amazing thing happens where, where we don't have to do that. We can just kind of relax and actually take it all in and then start to kind of space out in this dreamy, mind-wandering way that is is just really fruitful. So I think that's part of what's going on, you know, that our brains can kind of connect more widely and kind of open up to the sensory experience instead of trying to shut down.
1: Yeah, thank you. I was, um, you know, listening, listening to deeply to to what you were saying and that just the sound of soft fascination has somehow kind of captured just the sound of it. It kind of captured that, that idea. So, so well, because there is a change that, as you described that, um, I would only describe it as being at ease or Mm. more quickly, at ease in that environment. And just in my head, that must allow space for something else, you know? And,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's space that we don't necessarily allow in very often.
1: It's tougher I to find as well sometimes. Yeah.
0: It's tougher to find it. And, and you know, the late Harvard entomologist um, E.O. Wilson talked about this term biophilia, you know, that we have this kind of innate affiliation for living things and so when we're surrounded by them it feels very pleasant for us it's relaxing it's comforting even on a subconscious level like we may think oh i'm not someone who really likes you know the mountains or the woods or whatever but but your brain actually (laughs) knows how to read those landscapes our our perceptual systems were actually built to read natural landscapes, right? We evolved in them, and so on some level, we're just kind of comfortable enough there that our brains can kind of let go a little bit and 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 do some other stuff.
1: Yeah, that's um, it's quite the powerful idea, and um, I uh, I find the state of Oregon. You know, grew up on the East Coast and the state of Oregon is just so wildly different, um, both in its rugged ocean and Pacific Ocean and the mountains and the valley. It's such a different um, landscape, but there's a lot more opportunity to, to, to find that space and go towards that space here in the woods. So it's uh, I can bump into it more regularly. Right.
0: Yeah, you can bump into it. Exactly. and And there's so much variety in the Oregon landscape. You know, there's yep. coastal stuff, there's forest stuff, there's mountain stuff, there's dry, there's wet. You know, it, it really does keep you interested, I think, and, the, and there's a lot of novelty too, which our brains like.
1: Yeah, yeah. I um, I I had a statewide job. I was doing political organizing statewide. Uh, not too long after I arrived here, and I tell you, it was the best job in the best state at the best time, just in my life, because I did it for a couple years, but through that process I just so adored each spot that I was arriving in no matter where where it was Mm -hmm. um in the ability to go to it that I talked to friends of mine who are from Oregon and I tell them stuff about Oregon like what the heck I didn't know all that type of thing because I just maybe went around more as an outsider being like this is all wild and uh So I view that as such a a wonderful experience, you know, the high desert as well, you know, down in Klamath Falls and such.
0: Yeah, sounds great.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wanted to chat uh, about uh, heartbreak as well. And um, I think one of the most profound ideas that came through in that book um, as I read it was some sort of reckoning with the reality of loss uh, relationship. Uh, divorce and how much that, that impacts us. And I, I, felt within the book of saying, I, there's a blasé attitude about, uh, about something that has, can have significant mental and physical uh, effects, uh, in particular for women, um, but manifest in, in, in different, uh, genders, but, uh, in, in heartbreak, which described as a personal and, and scientific, uh, journey, What was the process like as you were going through things, grappling with <laughs> researching it as you're going through it? It's it 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 it, re- it sounds and reads as a unique experience. Can you just tell us like how that happened?
0: Yeah. You know, I was I was going through this heartbreak after a 25-year marriage ended, and it was incredibly destabilizing and disorienting and Uh, you know, my body felt super hypervigilant, you know, like I was kind of in this threat state because I didn't feel so comfortable or safe, you know, being alone. And there, and there are a lot of deep, deep, deeply evolved reasons, right. That our bodies kind of freak out a little bit. If we feel like we've been abandoned, uh, you know, even, even emotionally, our bodies kind of process it as if it's happening kind of in real time, you know on the Savannah. And I guess, you know, just as a science journalist, I was I was interested in that. I was like I it really surprised me. I'd never been heartbroken before. You know, certainly there are a lot of popular books out there about the way trauma kind of resides in our bodies, but I hadn't actually experienced it. Um, and And I, and so, you know, I was just interested in it and I guess it's, you know, it's Nora Efron, right. Who said everything is material (laughs) for a writer, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fruitful uh, and, and very urgent kind of curiosity. Right. And so I think it's as someone who just had written in the first person, you know, kind of loosely for many, many years, um, it seemed a little bit natural to turn to that as a subject in my writing. And I also think it helped me, or at least I thought it would, because it would kind of get me out of bed every day and give me a project and a sense of purpose and an excuse to talk to some really interesting people uh, who you know, I was hoping would be helpful to me. And of course, they were. Then, of course, the problem was that I had to actually sit with this material for years and write the book. And so I think what had been initially kind of a helpful motivation became also a burden, right? I had to kind of like live in this land of heartbreak every day, you know, while I was talking about the, the physical effects of it and, you know, the sort of bummer trivia of what happens to people who feel lonely, you know, or feel abandoned. I mean, there's a, there's a lot out there in the data about, you know, early rates of death and increased chronic disease and heart attacks and loss of cognitive function, you know, all this stuff that people go through kind of who are in trauma for a long time um, or who feel lonely for a long time. So that was the downside. Uh, And, and then I guess, you know, the upside, again, is that when I was done with the book, when I actually kind of, you know, pushed the button to send it off to my editor, it was a huge sense of relief. And, like, I kind of had the sense of closure a little bit in that, oh, I'm so done with heartbreak. I'm so done with it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think that closure itself at the very end, you know, was, in fact, helpful.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, it was it. I, I like I said. Um, there's a. It, I don't want to say pulls you in, but it, it, well, I mean it does. I mean the personal aspect and thinking about um, when you're talking about the the impacts on your body, and then I was thinking and try to translate it too because I'm thinking about my experience with relationship breakups, and I and I think that they've been like as a human, like I've, I've, I've felt them, I felt them hard, you know? And, um, but there's a language type of thing. And even hearing about describing it in terms of the body, I had a radical realization that I've only grown that type of language or being able to realize the body impact of what's going on. And way back then I didn't. So I'm like, you know, what the heck was going on with my body? And I'm sure I didn't like, process it. I think I was, I, I know I was drinking more around that time after yeah. the loss. And yeah. so I know, you know, in my head, why there might not have been that, that processing, but just, uh, just how serious of a, of a matter it is. To, yeah.
0: Our to nervous system loss. takes it really, really seriously. And I can't tell you how many readers, you know, reach out to me and say, Oh, now I understand what was happening in my body. And I think, I think it's helpful. You know, it's helpful to kind of understand that, you know, when, when we go through heartbreak, it feels like a very singular experience. It may be something we only go through a couple of times in our lives, we don't necessarily have friends going through it at the same time. And so it that's another reason it can be sort of disorienting. And I, and so I think, you know, being able to kind of read about it and understand, you know, that, that there is a language for it and there is a, yeah. there is a vocabulary and that there is a very universally shared response. Uh, I think a lot of people do find that very
1: helpful. Yeah. It's that com- community or, or group help <laughs> or group experience that can, that, that can really help with that. No, uh, yeah. Thank you for that work. Did, you know, I would, I, I mean, I think it's recognized or even in conveyed a sensation with the book that there was a lot of surprises as you went along that you were kind of pulling together new ground. How surprised were you with the lack of maybe serious consideration of heartbreak as, as you explored this? What was that like? Were you just shocked or what was it like?
0: I mean, I think that there is a lot out there about heartbreak in art and poetry and popular music and, you know, (laughs) but but there, there wasn't a lot of science, and that's, you know, what my mind is drawn to, what my mind wants for reassurance. So that was surprising. And then the science itself was surprising, you know, knowing that we have these transcription factors, you know, these genetic factors in our immune system that respond to our social state. You know that listen as one as as one immunologist told me, you know we have these cells that listen for loneliness and they change their genetic expression depending on whether we feel like we're alone or not. They change how they respond to viruses, they change how they respond to bacteria and infection I, that was like mind blowing to me uh and and part of why I felt so motivated to write this book, I just felt like that was new interesting stuff,
1: yeah. Yeah, I um, I wanted to ask you. Um, we we're talking about some—it's uh, very inspiring ideas about the the environment and in and, and creativity and, and just thinking about um, the ways that you create. But I wanted to ask you one of the big questions that I ask all guests is, "What is art?"
0: Yeah, what is art? Um, so I I I'm reading a, a book by the Irish poet John O'Donoghue called Mm -hmm. Anamkara. And, you know, when I saw you were going to ask me that question, I just immediately thought of this passage that I had read from it. Yeah. And, you know, basically that art is this way to sort of reconcile our interior lives and our exterior lives. And so, you know, if it's okay, I'll just read a couple of sentences from this. I'd
1: love that. I'd love that. Yeah.
0: Um, so you know John O'Donohue. Unfortunately, he's not alive any longer. But he was a priest who left being a priest to become kind of a spiritual philosopher. Uh, and so he thinks about these <laughs> he thinks about these things. So so here he says, "To be wholesome, we must remain truthful to our vulnerable complexity. No one else can undertake this task for you." You are the one and only threshold of an inner world. He says this wholesomeness is holiness. Behind the facade of image and distraction, each person is an artist in this primal and inescapable sense. Each one of us is doomed and privileged to be an inner artist who carries and shapes a unique world. I thought that was, I thought that was really provocative and interesting. Wow.
1: That is, that, that's, that's, that's quite amazing. <laughs> I, uh, I, I'm kind of bowled over by that. Um, I've had a lot of poetry and a lot of succinct language on the show lately. And, uh, you know, I, in listening to it and, in, in, in reading, there's just something special about that when, when it, when it captures it uh, for you. So uh, thank you for that. Um, good timing, <laughs> it seems like, for everybody. Um, what do you think the, what do you think the, a little more specifically, if you want to build off that, what do you think the, the role of art is? What, what's it do for us?
0: I think it's a way of processing what it means to be human in a way that makes us feel kind of special and unique and privileged in our uniqueness, but also gives us a sense of belonging because it is through art, you know, that we access another language, you know, with which to share what it means to be human. Yeah. So that's part of what I think it is. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I thank you for, thank you for that as well. Um, What about art and and, uh, healing? It's become a central... Like, I started this show four years ago. I've done about 200 episodes, and you learn as you create things that you don't know the whole story of why you were creating it or what you were moving towards. But part of it is... um, uh, a lot connected to what you'd read there of this kind of like uh, primal freedom of this this desire of this liberation of being yourself, you know, philosophy, art, and just um, just uh, being who you are. Um, in that, in in your books are about your books are about uh, healing. And, uh, and, and recovery and how crucial do you think arts are in that? I hear conversations the same, well, arts heal and I'm not trying to poo poo it. And I, cause I agree with it, but how important is, how important are the arts in, in, in helping us heal as humans?
0: Well, here's where the science journalist in me, I think can add something because what I learned through writing this book Is that one of the antidotes to grief? Is awe, you know, is beauty, and that was fascinating to me. And I go into it quite a lot in the book. What experiencing awe kind of opens up for us, Um, and there's and there's been a lot of really interesting psychology, you know, in this field, and among the things it opens up for us is a sense of belonging, sort of feeling connected, right, to something larger than ourselves. To feel awe is to feel a little bit overpowered by something amazing, and something that is outside of us, but that we also feel connected to. Um, That's really important for healing. And then it also, because it is a response to something external, you know, it gets us out of our heads in this really healthy way. You know, it kind of Reduces our ego, quite famously. Um, in, in a similar way, that now th- there's a lot of research in the science of psychedelics, you know, and, and why that's so transformational. There's something about kind of quieting our ego as we, I think, you know, explode in some new neuronal pathways in our brains uh, in a way that helps us tell stories of healing, you know, who we are, who we want to be, how we relate to the world that we don't have to be kind of enslaved to these patterns and stories that we've been telling ourselves for years, you know, that there's awe kind of, and, and beauty provide this like window of opportunity to write a new story. And I, I, I think that's a really under kind of antidote <laughs> to, to human misery. Uh, so it, it really got me excited when I heard about the science of that.
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of like the idea of like a uh, discarding old notions, even around creativity. Right. I was very influenced. I am very influenced by David Lynch and you know uh, his, his description oh. and experience with transcendental uh, meditation of, you know, moving away from the idea of like all this intense suffering is what pushes the stuff out as an artist, which is, part of the complicated story of an artist, but it was the, um, it was the reduction of the ego. It wasn't the exaggeration of the, it was the reduction of the ego. And then what is there watching what you would say, the big fish that are coming by and just catch Mm -hmm. them. And it sounds poetic and, you know, but it's the idea that it's due to the rescission of like, on the same point of, of, of the ego that you're like, something different is happening here. So
0: yeah. um, I think well, it's I mean, a like, like what John O'Donohue was saying, it's kind of both, right? It's It's that connection between what's going on inside of us and the external world. And sometimes we tend to just get a little too wrapped up in just the internal stuff. And it's really art, you know, that can help pull us out.
1: Yeah, I know That's that. My- <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad you know there's something good about talking about these issues too because we got some science back there before that because uh, uh i was uh, i was lodged in the philosophy department for a while oh, and yeah. uh, and even philosophers some philosophers do a lot of science but for me it was like what i know about the uh, science like Academically is, you know, the philosophy of science, which so, sounds like, okay, you're going to think about the idea, but it's an important, uh, it's an important piece. And I'm so in, impacted by um, my background is in studying literature and, and philosophy. So, you know, I adore writing and, and the craft. And I think that, I think, you uh, in 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 your combination like i said of you know personal uh, scientific and narrative that's a really tough area um to move through effectively and i and i think you do because the science will look at it one way right and then you know personal experience emotion and not you know uh so it's i i i, I see that you uh, do that i got want to move to like the big overarching question uh, the, regarding uh, the show and the life, the universe and everything is uh, I was wondering if you had an answer of why there's something rather than nothing.
0: <laughs> you tell me, isn't that the name of your show?
1: I know. Right. It's like, why? Uh, well,
0: let's talk about it because I don't know. I'm curious to know why you named your show that.
1: Yeah, why the question and everything? No, that's cool. Um yeah, so uh, uh something rather than nothing's like the biggest question of all, right? Like why why did all this why did all this happen? And what I tried to do like at the beginning of the show, or at least I was thinking about is it's like can be approached through art, science, and philosophy, right? In like in, in very different ways. So I find guests mm-hmm. would answer it like I made something from nothing, you know, like this shit wasn't here before and now like I did it and, and and I made it. But um, I didn't know at the time when I started the show. But what I like about the big question is that since it's a variety show that I do a variety show in many different directions, I felt like I just cast the wide net and, <laughs> and I'm able to talk to you and an opera singer and, 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 uh, and otherwise. Um, so, um, yeah, I love that. M- my, my answer to it, I've had to give an answer before is I'm very influenced by, uh, Buddhist, uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. And there's the notion of nothing, which is different than there being no thing. It's of, uh, kind of like, uh, uh, empty of inherent existence, right? Like that there's no thing, thing behind something that there's, uh, that there's you know, phenomena uh, that we experience. And so um, it matters how you like look at the term nothing, no thing, right? In Western philosophy is like, I make things because I don't want there to be nothing. Um, but you can also approach it in a different way of that there's like, okay, now this is going there. Like that there's no thing, behind the thing that there that there's no inherent existence there and there's phenomena so uh florence i think you flipped the question and turned me into a circle <laughs> Thank I, you. I, I think you, you t- turned it around <laughs> and turned me around on this show i uh <laughs> which is what the question uh which is what the question uh, can do um florence uh tell folks i mean uh, there's, there's a lot of places folks can go to find you know for, find your writing. I mentioned Audible. Do you, where, do, where do folks go to find um, your books, uh, your writing? Oh, yeah. uh, you know, Thank you for find asking your, that.
0: Um, yeah. I have a website that's really easy to find. It's FlorenceWilliams.com. There are links to my audio work and my print work and uh, retreats I give, talks that I give. I do because I'm so into the three day effect. I actually do lead retreats for three days, where where we go out into Ooh. a beautiful place and you know try to try to find some awe and try to experience some of that. Um, so uh, yeah, everything's on there.
1: Yes, yeah, great. I even uh, had looked at the website. and I've seen um, some nice, uh, I believe, it's animated videos connected to your work as well. So there's like nice, nice little promotional pieces and, and things in there. And, um, yeah,
0: I worked with some great artists to, to do these like cutout videos, um, to as book trailers.
1: That yeah. Really those, are, those are, those those were lovely. Um, and yeah, I uh, appreciate the audio work you do. I appreciate, uh, your writing and what you go into. I like the, you know, going right in with things. And I, and I think you're, uh, I, 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 I think you're, uh, courageous and trying to pull off what you do. And I think you, you pull off with what you do and it's, 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 and I think that the recent award recognizes that for literary science writing. So I've appreciated all your work. And I uh, just wanted to thank you for uh, chatting some of b- these big questions, turning the big question around on me, talking about poetry, heartbreak. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to thank you so much, Florence, uh, for coming on to the show.
0: Well, Thank you, Ken. It's really an honor to be here. And it's just an honor, you know, when anyone actually reads my books <laughs> and, and makes it through them and wants to talk about them. So um, thank you.
1: Yeah, that's what I've kind of done. My whole thing. If I find, I find one <laughs> that I get into and it's all piled through after that. So, uh, uh, great chatting with you and, um, uh, best of luck in your adventures. And I hope that f- sometime, be out in one of those three days and maybe find
0: yeah, go for the three, three days day of that group. That's what, yeah. that's what we all need if you can.
1: Thanks so much, Florence.
0: Thank you, can. This is something rather than nothing.